So let's start first with um, just a little bit of silence and bring ourselves back into the room. And then um, today I'm going to talk a little bit about that practice, but I wanted to kind of put it in a, in a bit of a context. So let's put So by way of motivation, just thinking about, oh, um, like in the meditation we have our friends and strangers and enemies. Oh, just expansive the heart uh, can be to encompass all of those with a feeling of respect and understanding and actual love for them as we know something about them. And then just thinking about the Buddha when he became enlightened and how this like metta, this loving kindness was such a tool even on the night that he became enlightened. It shows us something about the qualities of generating these kinds of minds, these kinds of understandings and experiences within our own mind speed. that allow us to then move forward from a place that's much more be peaceful and vast and full of both love and compassion and wisdom. So holding all of these together as we move through our days and through our lives. So as we spend this time together, um, Let's think about this in the context of really being a benefit to others by working on our own minds. And then think that we have this capability to expand these kinds of attitudes to an immeasurable amount. And then we do this um, for ourselves, for each other here, and for all beings that we contact with. So may we all become enlightened um, for the benefit of every single sentient being. some interest uh, in their spiritual world. And so it's interesting to think about what uh, what a religious life is about. And, and really, if you think about it, all religions have something to offer us, especially in terms of um, being more peaceful inside and having more happiness and working to get rid of any kind of suffering. So that's really the objective, I think, of all religions. So they have these methods or ways to involve ourselves to uh, actualize that. And they work especially for those who have faith. And, um, and, the, and so that's kind of how I want to introduce this, is when we think about the Buddhist teachings in particular, 
which we call the Dharma, um, what is that kind of faith? And in this tradition of religion, it's not one that you just accept things. It's not like a blind faith. It's one where you kind of examine things and you learn and examine things and kind of. Mm, so you want to bring this kind of attitude to, to every topic that you learn about of um, a certain frame of mind, a certain attitude. And that's kind of a mind of inquiry. Um, and it's not in kind of inquiring that is to mm, learn things intellectually. It's a kind of inquiring that is to look at your own experience and to develop your capacity as a, as a living being. So it's not about doctrine and things like that. So this draws us to look at our own experience. That's really the point, is to realize the truth and to realize it within our own experience. And this is something that really no one can do for us. So we're left with the task to, you know, find our way. And it's not like we're all alone, though, because the Buddha uh, had his uh, own experience. He took things to kind of, maybe you could say, perfection, a level of profundity, and then he taught for many years. So we have, we have all kinds of guides and help. But it doesn't, like, it's more in the sense of the Buddha gave us the methods, but he didn't give us the answers, <laughs> in the sense, because you have to find it up for yourself. So I think that's the, um, the kind of like the backdrop for me of how to approach any kind of teachings of the Buddha. So often um, when we start teachings, we, we talk about the, what we might call the Buddhist worldview. And I think this is helpful for the topic that we're on today, which is we're going to talk about the four immeasurable attitudes, which are compassion, joy, and equanimity. So here we're talking about the mind. And so what does, what does Buddhism, you know, what do they recognize about the mind? Well, they recognize that the human, human beings have an amazing capacity. The mind is what is experiencing and feeling things. We don't think of it as just like a material thing, like the brain. The mind is your experience, everything you feel, think, cognize, memories. It's, it's a vast, it's a, just vast. And, and also, it's not just like intellectual, it's actually what you experience, like in your heart, you have that expression, like, has a good heart. And, and that, is, this is what we mean when we say mind. Like in, Tibet, in Tibetan language, they don't have a separation between mind and heart. They're, they're referring to the same thing that we kind of break into two in our language. So, and then there's the just taking a moment to reflect on the capacity that we have as human beings with the kind of mind that we have. And when you think about it, we can absorb about anything because of the way the mind works. And so if you just look at like everything that we have in this room and this beautiful tanka and the airplanes that are flying overhead, these are actually all creations of our mind. So, you know, it's like don't limit yourself is what this, I like to contemplate this fact so that I won't limit myself. I will just, you know, like, try to make my mind expansive to grow into these amazing teachings. So, we have the capacity to understand all of the teachings of the Buddha. And sometimes it feels kind of hard <laughs> because there's like 84,000 in there. Some are pretty complicated. We might not do it all in this lifetime. Hopefully, we have that rebirth thing going for us. But you know, just you know, to have that kind of uh, to take that kind of attitude, I think, is is good, so that we don't limit ourselves. And and we've heard stories about people who were really great masters in the Buddhist tradition, who almost even one who died recently in Taiwan. He when he hear about him when he was young, he seemed like he might have been developmentally delayed. But then he did all these prostrations, every, all these obscurations lifted, and he became this great abbot. And, great, you know, and so I, there's a lot of stories in Buddhism like that. So some of our obscurations are things that are like karmically caused. They're not like always physically caused. Like, yeah, of course, there's mental 
there's things related to the body that limit our capacity if we have a brain injury, brain injury. But you know, there's also we have a lot of capacity. So I think it's good to know that we can understand these teachings, and we have to just make the effort and have uh, the conditions so that we can do that. And so then the Buddha, um, when he taught, he, the first thing he taught was the Four Noble Truths. And this is a teaching that takes all of these, you know, like, sorry, 84,000 teachings of the Buddha, and it puts it all into one framework. And all of the teachings of the Buddha can be understood in this framework. And so the first two truths basically describe our situation, and the third and fourth truths basically are practical way to improve that situation. So the four noble truths are, the first one is true sufferings, and this is like, if you think of it like a medical model, this is like the diagnosis. And this is something that we have to actually identify, and we don't always identify what what this suffering nature is. The word that the Buddha used was not suffering, it was dukkha. And he took a word that was a at that time, and he kind of brought it to a much higher meaning than it had. And so suffering is in the great translation, but if you, if one way I like to think about it is like there's always this mismatch between our expectations and what really happens. There's constantly this mismatch. That's the way you know, Bhikkhu Bodhi described it, and I'm like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's part, that's one, one description. And so what the Buddha, where it came from, is just this very simple observation of the Buddha and it's one that if you can look directly at it is very profound because it leads to all of this wisdom and that's basically that our human life and actually of all things is problematic it has these kind of inadequacies or difficulties so some of them that you know we have many ways that we have teachings on this but some of them are just very palpable for most of us maybe not when I was a teenager but I think I was experiencing this but I wouldn't have had the words or any kind of understanding of it, but I'm, I'm sure I definitely was experiencing it. But I think we see this more clearly as we get older, that there's really no security or certainty. Things are always changing, you know? You, can't, you think you're financially secure, and then <laughs> think this relationship is secure, it changes, you know? Anything you look at, you can't really find anything that doesn't change. So all these things, everything's subject to change. So, and then also that we're, kind of really, our satisfaction never lasts. It always eludes us. We're satisfied briefly and then it changes. If, if it was, if you were completely satisfied by going shopping, you'd only have to shop once. <laughs> Look at all the malls we have. You know, so that one's out. <laughs> you know. And then our status changes, you know, sometimes people like us, sometimes they don't, you know, sometimes we're rich, sometimes we're poor. And then just if you look at your own experience of the suffering that you have, although people can be quite empathetic and they can relate it to their own experience, we really actually undergo our suffering alone. The pain we feel, no one else actually feels that same thing, even though they might be able to be quite empathetic and understanding. So, you know, those are things that are, you know, some of just examples of the kind of suffering that we have. And so then the second part of the first you know, the first set of that's describing our situation is that there are causes. And this is like in medicine, like the etiology, like what's making this happen. And these are something that we want to abandon. <laughs> you know, once we really get it, that there are, that we have, we can identify our suffering and that we can actually see that there are causes. And once we actually see there are causes, and especially because we grew up in a scientific culture, we don't have too much trouble with thinking that things are caused. Although in the time of the Buddha, there were and even now there's a lot of other kind of ways to construe the world, like things are random or, you know. But we kind of have, many of us, this kind of causality is kind of ingrained because of our education. So, yeah, if you knew, if you really knew there was a cause for something, you'd have quite a bit of energy to want to do something about it, you know. And that's where we get to the, um, so before I go forward on that, so what are those causes? Well, the Buddha identified what sometimes we call the three poisons, ignorance, anger, and attachment, clinging attachment. So it's like these mental afflictions in the mind, these things that disturb, afflictions are like defilements, things that disturb the mind. And then not only the, those mental states that are afflicted, 
but then the actions that we do, which is karma. So this is what the Buddha identified. And the root of that is the ignorance, which is a kind of thing where we don't really understand reality. But the good news is, is that the Buddhist understanding of the mind is that the mind itself is basically, you might say, pure. Then you would use more of the word luminous or clear and knowing, clarity and awareness. So that's the nature of the mind. So if you think of it, uh, these mental states that come up, you can just look in your own experience. Of course, we've all experienced anger, but is it there every moment? No, it's not there every moment. It's there sometimes, and it's not there other times. And so, in the nature of the mind, these things may arise, but they're not like one, union one with the mind. They're not, like, say, like, well, they oftentimes use the analogy of a cloth. It's like a stain on a cloth, the mind being the cloth. You can keep washing that cloth, and eventually the stain will leave, because the stain isn't part of the cloth. Versus, like, our carpet over in that building, they embedded the, everything right in the chemicals of it. You couldn't separate out the color from that if you wanted to. It's not like painted on. It's the right part of it. And that's how it is with our, these states of mind that are, you know, that's dry to have. They're not one with the mind. And so they are things that are, like we would say, adventitious. They're temporary and they can be removed. So like anger is a distorted state of mind. We're just kind of exaggerating negative qualities. And attachment, this clinging attachment where we run after things thinking they're going to bring us all this happiness, that's also a distorted state of mind because you're not going to find happiness in a package of ice cream. You can open it up and look as much as you want. There's no happiness in that ice cream. But we get happy when we eat ice cream. So it's not in the external object, right? So these kind of understandings are... um, are crucial for us to have the energy to go forward and to work with our states of mind. We have to see that that some of our states of mind, our perceptions are distorted and that they bring us suffering so that we have some reason to want to change. Basically, that's how I would look at it. And so that is the third, third noble truth, is that that cessation of this is possible all of these unsatisfactory conditions can be ceased. And this is something that we need to realize. So this is what you might call in medicine the prognosis. And I would say then the prognosis is good. The Buddha said the prognosis is excellent. <laughs> you know, It's not like uh, there's no chance. Like His Holiness said once, if there wasn't any, um, if this third noble truth didn't exist, you might as well just go out and drink beer. <laughs> this is nothing you can do. You know, so make the best of a bad situation. But that's not what the Buddha said. You know, so the prognosis is quite excellent. So we need to realize these cessations. And then there's the, the fourth noble truth, which is the path. And this is, like in medicine, it would be the remedy. You might say the medicine, but I like to say maybe the remedy, because there's many things besides pills that can do the remedy things. And this is something that we need to practice. And that's like what we did this morning. This, and so I want to kind of then show how powerful the meditation that we did this morning can be. So uh, this path is one that at its end point can bring about, about complete liberation of all of these kinds of sufferings that we have in our experience. That's what the Buddha found and taught. And many other people have uh, done that as well. And we all started out, they all start out just like us. They're no different. So it's not like we have, like anyone has a corner on the market. <laughs> and that's the Buddhist belief with our Buddha nature. That we all have this potential. So then how do we go about removing these defilements? And this is where we get into this idea of antidotes. And that's like kind of what we experienced this morning maybe you were able to get to the place where you brought to mind someone that you had anger towards, that you might have even felt rage towards or hatred in a a moment of your mind, right? And then you apply these kind of ways to understand things and you spend some time learning and contemplating these ideas and then meditating on them. And then you can actually change that experience because the way things work is that you can't have love and hatred in the mind at the same time. 
just look at your own experience. You'll never, you know, they might they have to be different moments of mind. The two just don't aren't there at the same time. And so when we kind of just fill ourselves up with one, we don't even get room for the other one to be there sometimes. And like the meditation we did this morning is one that actually is, and, and the, all of the four immeasurables are ones that you can actually develop um, meditative stability on, like um, single-pointed concentration on those. So you can just hold your mind. You can use those to actually train the mind to be able to concentrate on, on one object, like we do the breath, or we do the visualized image of the Buddha, or, you know, and these four contemplations on the four immeasurables also are taught by the Buddha to do that. And you could, I, I was paying attention to that this morning, um, that, because it, when I did the studying for this, I found this word, in, imperturbability. And I thought, wow, that is it. And it truly was like that, you know, when you can just hold your mind with this feeling of loving kindness, of metta. The mind really, it wants to stay there. It was, and, it, and if you can move through your day with that kind of mind, like extending kindness, I think that expression I learned from you, you know, if you can hold that as situations come up, then you can have this kind of imperturbability. You can have that potential, and you can see that. So, you know, so hatred and love are like two kind of polar opposites, right? But we have many different kinds of afflictions, and so I'll just list them briefly so that we have like the vocabulary for some of us that are new. So one way to describe them is many ways, but it's kind of like six basic ones that you could kind of put most things into these categories. We have like attachment, where we're kind of exaggerating the good qualities of something, kind of like, you know, like, when you first fall in love and the person's perfect, and then you start learning some warts in it or something. That first part, you've exaggerated the good qualities there. And then we cling to these things. You know. And then anger, now we're exaggerating the you know, negative qualities that we see. Now the person's like all bad when we have that state of mind. We can't see any of the good qualities then because we're so angry. That's distorted. And then we have pride. And this is a kind of inflated sense of self, and we can't, uh, you know, we think there's something special about any, special about ourselves, like our good qualities are somehow more special than the other six billion, nine hundred thousand, ninety-nine, whatever. You know, we're a little more special than all those other seven billion minus one. You know, so sometimes we feel like we're the best of all. Sometimes we will feel like we're the worst of all with pride. It will go either way. But we're definitely special there. <laughs> and then we have this kind of ignorance sometimes where we uh, don't really, we're just unclear about things or we actively misconstrue things, especially like how our actions have an ethical dimension. Sometimes we think, you know, the things we do just don't matter unless you get caught. Well, that's what I used to think. <laughs> I think when I was younger, it's a part of my mind, not all of it. But, um, you know, there definitely that boomerang comes around. And then there's also a kind of ignorance about the nature of reality. And then we have sometimes a kind of doubt that we fall into, uh, a diluted kind of doubt where we kind of can't, we're kind of tending towards things that are mm, incorrect, really, in our understanding of things. And then we have wrong conceptions like, just kind of, that's a big topic, but uh, one example would be the belief maybe that mm, some religions have that like, like animal sacrifice or even human sacrifice is like useful, <laughs> you know, like, that you could propitiate the gods. You would, in Buddhism we would call that a wrong thing. So m- most people don't believe that now, but it's not everyone go to India. There's people who still do animal sacrifice. So those are kind of the main categories of, of how our afflictions arise. And so when we try to work with our mind in this way, we first have to, when we start our meditation practice, we have to kind of figure out which one is the big ticket item for us and focus on that. You don't really try to you know, clean everything up at once. You go to the big one. And so then you see, like, say anger, because it's a little easier sometimes to recognize than some of the other ones. So if you just think about anger, what kind of problems is that causing you? 
in your life. You know, look at your life. Is it working? Is that working for you? You know, like what they say to teenagers. You know, is that working for you? <laughs> because it's like unrealistic, right? So how could it work? Or then, how does it do for your future? You know, when you think about, you know, down the line, how did that go? How did that go for you, you know? So we, we kind of look at things in this way around these afflictions so that we get some understanding of them and realize the advantage of abandoning them. Because if we think they're good for us, why abandon them? So we have to kind of make this discernment. And so, uh, to me, like the conclusion of that is that um, we have to see the harm. You know, like in, in the way we say it in our Lam Rim is like, see the advantages and the disadvantages. For my own mind, it's like, I need to see the harm that something's causing, and then I have some energy to want to change. And then if uh, it's something that I can see is quite beneficial, then I have some energy to try to want to, you know, work, my, train my mind in that direction. You know. Just like if I, you know, one session of working out is kind of good for you, it actually has some benefit, but if you string a whole bunch of them together, you really get in shape. And it's the same kind of thing. We want to have some reason to make ourselves go out there and exercise every day, or to make ourselves sit on the cushion and do these kind of uh, trainings. So we have to see the benefit and the um, disadvantages. And so for me, it's pretty much, I find the harm in something, and then I definitely want to change. And that's, that's how it kind of goes. So, these four immeasurable attitudes are in all the Buddhist traditions. They were maybe taught a little bit differently, but the meaning in general is, is pretty much the same. The basic meaning is the same. And this has to do with how we're approaching our relationships with others. This is really what it's about. And so, the Buddha said that about each of these, about love, compassion, joy, and equanimity, that each of those are free of this kind of aversion or anger. And each of them is free of attachment and also free of indifference. So, and also each of them are accompanied by mindfulness and a kind of alertness or introspective awareness. And those are things that as Buddhists, we, everyone cultivates, right? Mindfulness, introspective awareness. It's a little bit like this verse that we say, and many of you have heard this because we chant this often. Um, lost it on here. Oh yeah, that's from the 37 Practices of the Bodhisattvas. And it's kind of the summary, the next to last verse. In brief, whatever you are doing, ask yourself, what's the state of my mind? With con- constant mindfulness and mental alertness, accomplish others' good. This is the practice of Bodhisattvas. So we develop these tools of mindfulness and kind of an awareness of what's going on in our mind. Mindfulness is like where you familiarize with yourself with something like, say in this context it might be like recognizing, you know, like recognizing that you have a propensity for anger and like kind of going through the day and saying, I'm going to pay attention to this and when it comes up, I'm going to just try to be aware of it and then Maybe I'll even do something about it. But the mindfulness is like, is this intention, almost. it's not, not intention, but it's this part of the mind that wants to familiarize yourself with something and then you want to kind of stick to it. And then the awareness is like a little spy in your mind that says, am I doing that? You know, as you go through your day, you know, there's many ways to talk about mindfulness, but that's one way. And so with these four attitudes, those are part of them. You have to be... Uh, if you're kind of just operating on automatic and just in a total reactive mode and or you know really inebriated, it's not the word intoxicated mm-hmm. is the word. You can't really do these things. You know, you think about any time if you've ever gotten drunk in your life, and then you want to kind of be mindful of about anything. <laughs> it's not gonna happen. So, uh, <laughs> so it's kind of the reverse of that. <laughs> Okay. Okay, so let's go on to these four attitudes then. And so the first one is um, immeasurable love. And this is a kind of friendliness. And I'm going to teach this more from the way they taught it in the Pali canon, in the Theravada tradition. And so this is 
These are kind of like four attitudes that we take towards others when we relate to them. And so the basic attitude that we want to cultivate is a kind of friendliness. This kind of, you know, that's our basic stance when we approach anyone. You know, we're just, you know, we're just, that's where we want to come from. And I'll talk about each of them more, but I want to give short descriptions first. And so that is Maitri in Sanskrit, which is the name of one of our cats, or Metta in Pali, which is a word that you hear a lot in the Buddhist world, Metta. So there's different meditations on metta, or loving kindness. And then compassion, which is our little cat, karuna, is the Sanskrit and Pali word for compassion. So that's when we see, you know, someone having bad conditions, undergoing some kind of misery, and we respond with this compassion, where we wish them, or if it's of ourselves, we wish ourselves to be free of that suffering and the causes of it. And then this immeasurable joy um, in these are slightly described differently, but in this way, it's like when you're looking at others and you see that, like, wow, this person, you know, they're really, things are going well for them, or they're really good at something, or whatever, and instead of being jealous, we respond with this feeling of rejoicing, and we're happy. We're happy when other people have prosperity, or good fortune. And then the immeasurable equanimity, um, one way to think about this is like, say somebody is kind of stuck, You know, you're trying to help somebody, and they're just not really going for it, you know. And then, so, and you can see that they're even, you know, creating all these causes of difficulty for themselves, but we really kind of can't get through to them. And so this is, instead of like kind of brushing that person off and maybe being rude even, it's the mind that can hold them in equanimity, equanimous. It's this thing of like you're able in your heart to keep the door open. That's, that's kind of what we're looking at. So then if you think about it in terms of antidotes, it's like opposite things, right? Like when you have hatred, you can't have love in the mind at the same time, right? So for love, for if you're having ill will or hatred in your mind, the antidote, one antidote is love. If you're having like a harmful attitude towards someone or maybe even cruel, you know, a cruel thought or deed or whatever, then what the antidote of that is this compassion. And, that, and then say you're kind of like jealous of somebody, you know, in your mind when it's jealous, there's really not any joy in the mind, <laughs> then the, you know, the antidote to that is to rejoice, bring this joy into your mind. And then if you find that you're like, um, well, the one of equanimity, say sometimes you're really, it, it works for kind of both attachment and anger in the sense of if you if you're really like drawn to something, you're like clinging, like kind of the addiction mind. You think of that, what that mind's like, and how you're operating, like when you're kind of craving something, or if you're really angry at someone. The mind that's equanimous lacks both of those. So, you, if you find yourself with either of those, you try to get your mind equanimous. So, this is those are like, you know, the opposites. And so, if you think about it, when you have compassion in your mind, or you have love in your mind. You don't really have anger then, right? You feel, you know, you have to observe your mind and see. And when you have joy in the mind, you have a kind of happiness that's there, you know? And when you have equanimity, it's a kind of detachment, but it's not like a cold detachment. It's kind of more like you're connected. You kind of have this open-hearted feeling, but you're detached in the sense that you're not overly drawn in or overly remote, you know what I mean? Well, that's that's what these are about. So it's easy to explain these, and you can, you know, very few words you can explain these things, but they're actually quite profound. And so I think that um, what I'd like to suggest is you take this as a homework project. So to um, like this week, think about those four: love, compassion, joy, and equanimity, and then look at how what's happening when you're encountering encountering people during the day. And then be aware, not so much, it can be about your behavior, but more is kind of like the internal, how are you responding? How are you moving about in the world? And so, you know, it's, it can be really interesting to look at this because oftentimes our reactions to people are quite habituated. We have like habit patterns. And so if you shed the light of awareness and you become mindful of these things, like, you know, when you get up in the morning, 
think about these four things. I think, you know, as I move through my day today, I want to kind of watch how am I interacting and not kind of be like an automatic with whenever somebody does this, I do that, right? Just a knee-jerk reaction. So oftentimes these things that are habitual like that we're not even aware of. And that's one of the benefits of living in a community like this. Things get pointed out. And you just learn all kinds of things, you know, and, and even... Mm, a lot of times, you know, we're just kind of out of touch. Um, when you're on automatic, you are out of touch, right? Because you're, just by definition, you're not really kind of with it in that way. And so that's kind of the homework, is to um, try to bring those four things to mind and just watch how you're interacting, how you're moving through your day. So then um, we'll just talk a little bit more about each of them. So if you want to, you know, for me, when I think about loving kindness, I think I, lately I just use the words like extending kindness. It's a kind of having this kind heart. And we do that, you know, why? Why would we do that? I was recently you know, teaching, I guess it was September in Seattle, and somebody asked me a question that was like, I was so puzzling because I hadn't thought this way for a while. Like, and it was kind of, it would be like, me saying this to you, you would say, like, well, why does anyone deserve that? You know, well, that's a good question. Why do they deserve that? You know, so you need to think about that. Like, why, why would I do this? You know, why do they deserve this? Well, I have my answers. <laughs> Buddha has answers for this, but, you know, I think I pose that to you. I want you to think about that. So, um, this kind of attitude is like of metta, loving kindness. It's the opposite of a mind that's critical and judging. It's the opposite of a mind that wants re- revenge, right? Or is suspicious or has any kind of power trips. It's, that's not it. Or even a mind that lacks confidence. That's not it. This is a, a something that's very much not that. And this is new to me, and I think it's worth thinking about although I don't, can't say I understand this, but, because um, these texts go back, I mean, all the way to the ones that, to the year 500, and there's texts written throughout that, you know, the time period about this meditation, and one of the things that I read said that all of our constructive states of mind have a basic form of this kind of love, in it, in another of these four qualities too. And I'm kind of looking in my experience, wow, I'm not sure I'm aware of that. I want to think about that one some more. But if you have any notion of wanting to have your mind states be constructive, it's, you know, it's interesting to, to think about that, like, wow, how does that work? So, you know, just look in your experience and explore this. So if one way of that in the Pali tradition or in the Theravada tradition that they talk about these kind of things is they talk about the near enemy and the far enemy. And I find this quite helpful to really know, identify in my own experience what is going on in my mind. So for love, you know, it's this wish for others to be happy and to have the causes of happiness. And the direct enemy, as we've talked about, the direct opposite, you might say, is this ill will or anger. But there's also this thing that they call the near enemy, or the indirect enemy. And this one is like clinging, getting too close. And this is where we mix up attachment and love. You know, like when, when we have like this kind of clinging to it, or you know, kind of like this over-involvement, because we're like thinking that this is a source of happiness, that's really not love. And we have a hard time discerning these near enemies. These, you know, that's why they call them that. It's near. And it's so much like it that you can't always discern it. So uh, this morning, Vinamasamta talked about what is happiness. And I think um, one thing I want to add to that is I, I hadn't, um, I went back to one of the talks that Venable gave in 2006, and I hadn't thought about this this way, but she said, you know, she kind of, like you were mentioning, there's kind of like a worldly kind of happiness. And then there's one that's maybe more about inner transformation kind of thing. But if you think about worldly happiness, it's nice to off to 
wish people to have worldly happiness. May they have all the food they need in a house and prosperity and all of these things, be popular, rich, whatever. But what she did is she put footnotes on all of them. <laughs> That's probably a good idea. Because if you think about it, if you're going to wish somebody to be rich and famous, well, think about like Princess Diana. That came with a few problems, you know, like Pazzarotti. You know? So in the people I know who become very wealthy because I worked around athletes, I mean, they never knew who their friends were anymore. And people were always on them because they had a lot of money, right? So if you're going to wish somebody, you know, prosperity and you know, to be rich and famous, you said, put the footnote in. Uh, so she says something like, may they have, uh, maybe they be rich and may they be content and have good relationships with others without strain, without competitiveness. So I think that's kind of a wisdom there, add these footnotes. And so if you're going to say, may this person have a wonderful house, well, then you want to, might want to wish, wish him a house that doesn't have any problems, <laughs> if you do maintenance at all. <laughs> or if you say, may this person have a great career. Well, maybe they want to have some feeling of satisfaction, you know. So, kind of, I think it's good to not just make it. This is the mind that always goes to the external object. Once again, we're we always are. Our senses look outward, and we always think the happiness is in the object, or the problem is in the other this thing, you know. And this is again what we're doing there. We're thinking, I'm going to give them this happiness by giving them this food. Of course, you need food. Of course, you need shelter. But, you know, it's not in the object. And so this helps us bring it back, I think. It's not the situation of the object. It's how we're relating to it. And so when we wish people these things, let's make it kind of, uh, as Lama Sankapa said about this practice, it has to be conjoined with wisdom. And that's what oftentimes our problem is in our country is when sometimes when we have compassion, we don't mix it with some wisdom and we don't get such a good result. Okay, and then the other kind of happiness was from this internal transformation. And so maybe a person, maybe they'd be free of anger. Can you even imagine what that would feel like? I mean, it's a wonderful thing to wish for yourself and anyone to be. You know, this is this, what you want to do when you when you do this meditation. It's like, you know, just feel it. Wow, how wonderful that would be. And then just give it to people. That's why in that meditation this morning, when I thought about those three people, the woman who I knew, and then her kids who I never met, but I know it was very traumatic for them. And they, she had gone to Hawaii. She had been running in a cane field. And, you know, we lived in Eugene. It's very cloudy there. She used to work in our pharmacy downstairs, and she had the most beautiful skin because I don't think she got outside very much in Eugene. And when she did, to go running, it was always cloud-covered. So then when they were in Hawaii and she got killed there, the priest went over there, they're, they're, you know, somebody functioned like a priest, and told the, the family not to come over because it was such a, her body had been mutilated. And her children, one of them had trouble just going out in the sun after this. Mm-hmm. So I was just thinking this morning about this person I don't know, and like, now it's 30 years later, and I'm like, wow, how is she doing? And just wishing her mm-hmm. to have this, you know, may she be well, may she be happy, may she have... Her life have gone on because she was like they were teenagers, you know. Maybe their life be good because they're in like their early forties now. And then thinking about the person who did this crime, I mean, like, wow, it's thirty years later now. Maybe this like we know people who have done things like this because we write to inmates and we know quite well and we've seen them change and they have they have the Buddha potential like all of us and they can become you know this is something they did it was horrific but they are not horrific people. And they, you know, they people change, and they have good hearts in there. And so, may this person be happy. May they have whoever did this. May he have worked this. He or he worked this out, you know, and not caused any harm to others. And and it's really a beautiful thing to be able to try to hold these difficult situations with that kind of mind. And then you can see how the mind would be unperturbed if you could hold that deeply enough. And so I think that's quite powerful. So as we do this meditation, as we did this morning, we start with um, people who are, often you start with yourself, and then you move on to people who are quite close, maybe your uh, parents if you're quite close to them, but it's usually someone who's quite close, and then they kind of sometimes take you to people who are a little less close, but still close, 
and then maybe less close, but still on the friend category. And then you go to strangers, and you kind of, they did it somewhat in gradations, you know, so it's not like a shock. Um, because um, as this is explained, like, there's a really nice book um, by His Holiness that Jeffrey Hopkins put out called How to Expand Your Love. And it's four bucks on Amazon. <laughs> but it really lays out these, how to do these kind of meditations in a way that tells you when to move on. Like, you want to bring, have this feeling, and don't move on from the easy one until you have that feeling, and then take it to the next one. So they kind of break it up in these gradations. Like, you just don't start this meditation with your worst enemy. Because you won't be able to get your mind. Most people will not be able to get their mind to expand. Because in order to feel, have a feeling of love for someone, you have to have a kind of a positive regard. You have to be able to see their qualities and have a kind of respect. Those are kind of like the ingredients. And when you, when you, if you don't feel love, you can work on those things. You can, you know, like this is what I do if I'm angry at someone. I, like, I, when I sit down, I'm like, wow, you know, where's my respect here? You know, where's my understanding of this person? And this is how I work my mind out of states of anger. It's like, you know, these to me are like uh, what I've learned. These are the ingredients so you can get to a place of having love. So, yeah, so you do it in gradations. And, and once you are able to generate that and have that kind of feeling, then you can actually then concentrate on it. You can single-pointedly concentrate on that internal state of feeling this kind of love. And then hold that. And then when you're ready, go on, and maybe you might do that for quite a while. And I, I did this last winter. with I used that book a lot last winter. And, I, and they really broke it up in ways that were very user-friendly, you know, how to break this up and really lead yourself through things in a way that's fail safe. And just when to move on, when not to move on. Like you're seeing your mind do this, go back. Is that so? You break these things up. It's basically yourself, and then people who are quite close, then people who are strangers, who you have more neutral feelings for, and then people you have difficulty for. But even in there, you have gradations. You know, you've got your enemies, and you've got your enemies. You've got the people who irritate you. In one moment, and you've got people who you're just enraged with, and so there's a gradation there of, of our, you know, our, uh, internal states. And so that's uh, how we go through actually all four of those meditations in that same kind of manner. And then uh, compassion. One thing I read in the, from the Theravada tradition that says it's the factor that makes the heart quiver when <laughs> others suffer. That was kind of well put. You know, because that's that part that touches you. You know, you're touched by it. And you're wishing for this suffering to be removed in another person. And so it's reversed. You know, it's, it's a direct enemy. It's direct opposite. is this kind of a harmful or cruel attitude. But the near enemy is one where we get into trouble. The near enemy is grief. Where we get not... in a kind of grief where we get, like, uh, overly... Mm, kind of overwhelmed by the situation. What what we usually say here is personal distress. Sometimes we conflate, we mix those two together. We think we're having, we might have started with compassion where we, you know, we saw suffering, it affects us, we wish they didn't have it, but then my mind usually goes into, well, what can I do? And I'm like, oh, I can't do anything. And I go into personal distress. And like, well, now I'm not thinking about that person anymore, I'm thinking about myself. And so this is the thing, this is the near enemy, emotionally overwhelmed. You know, at that moment, that's that's not um, when you're emotionally overwhelmed by seeing suffering. You, that's not compassion. That's overwhelm. <laughs> you know, so personal distress. Maybe. So, and then you know, sometimes it happens where we see suffering and we just don't want to look at it. We kind of like want to turn the other way, or we maybe want to jump in and fix things or control things. Those are not none of those things are compassion. And then the other really, I think, helpful point is to realize that compassion, or any of these four, they're internal states. And, and we, if you're like me, you move to action quite soon. And that's not always a great idea, because you can move into things and not be so clear. You know, like if you really can generate compassion in your mind, then when you go into a problematic situation, if you can hold that compassion, you'll have a, quite a strength about you. And then you can probably move through the situation uh, with a mind that's not overwhelmed, right? 
probably a lot clearer. Maybe more wisdom could enter into that mind because you're not like, so caught up or trying to, you know, really uh, take control of things or just fix it. You know, so uh, to realize that these are internal attitudes that we can do on the cushion, you don't have to even. Of course, we want to move into action, but there's a separation here from, like, what you might say, the strategy of intervening and the internal state of what you're trying to cultivate. And that's uh, helpful to realize that there's a difference. Because we get, when I taught about compassion, I, people, these kind of questions come up left and right. Well, you're just going to let people walk all over you then? Or, you know, or is it just okay that they do these things? We're not saying that. We're not saying it's okay. We're not saying any of these things are okay. We're making a discernment between a person's behavior and a person. You know, are they are they a good and bad person, or was it a good and bad behavior? It's more like that, and the discernment between what is my internal, you know, my internal uh, state going to be about this, and what am I going to do? They're, they're different things. And then joy. This is this rejoicing at others' good situation, like say when someone has a, you know, they're in their well-being maybe, or in their um, dharma practice, here they are, they're moving themselves on, and their ability to be constructive, and you know, this is funny how that comes up, because you can just see it like in your work setting, if you and somebody else wanted this promotion, they got it, and you do usually just like, wow, isn't that great? <laughs> Probably not my first reaction. <laughs> I really wanted something. Um, yeah, so the mind of jealousy, you know, and that actually can be very difficult to recognize. Um, and so, mm, I think if, um, if it's not something that you recognize right now, I know I didn't very much when I moved to the Abbey. I definitely was aware of situations in my life that repeated themselves that I could never really figure out. And I actually, I remember I even went to therapy sometimes over the years and brought these side issues up and never got to that until I moved here and started to understand jealousy and pride and it's like, oh wow, that's amazing, that happens more than I thought. But I had so other things that were bigger, you know, that I were kind of clouding everything and I had to kind of understand those first. So when you, you know, look at these kind of things that come up in your mind, work with the big ones, as you get those settled down, the other ones will become more clear. You'll be able to see better and then you can work with them better. And so jealousy and pride are both things that are hard to recognize. Yeah. What's the near enemy of Oh, sorry. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, the near enemy is, this is interesting. So the direct enemy is jealousy. And the near enemy is exaltation. Being so excited about their prosperity. Like, I think of it as a kind of exuberance, almost. In the, uh, so that your mind is... I had to think about that some, and then I finally kind of, you know, as I thought about it, I kind of found a state where I thought, yeah, maybe that's it. I have to think about that one more. So, if you try to feel the difference between a mind that's joyful, a joyful mind can be quite peaceful, you know, versus kind of maybe my exuberant mind that likes to, like, Zing around like Maitri, like our little, like Karuna. Zing! <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. I have to look and see how that is for you. Okay. And then equanimity. Um, I'm going to explain this more from the, the way they do it in the Theravada tradition. Um, this is a little different from what we're used to, but it's not that different. So they talk about it as being kind of in part, part of this kind of, maybe what we would call mental factors, states of mind that are even-minded. Like you have an even temperament towards everyone, towards anyone, towards, you know, towards another person. And so it's kind of like you don't have all this attachment or, or uh, anger going on. Your mind is more quiet inside. And it's... Uh, able to see the equality of all beings. And that's the thing of when I think about this morning, I think maybe my mind moved more to one of an equanimous feeling about those three people. You know, just all of them had their own suffering. 
that, that feeling of kind of, they're all equal in that way. All of them wanted to be happy. So this feeling of equality of all beings. And when it doesn't go right, the, the, I think they would call this the, yeah, the, okay, so the reverse of it the, is in, the, in this one thing they said, attachment. And that's because you might also have anger there, but it's usually because you were attached to something, you didn't get it, and then you got angry. So they say that the direct enemy is attachment. But then the near enemy is indifference. And this is quite helpful to recognize. When you have an equanimous mind, you're not indifferent. You are actually connected. You're wanting, you have a, like an open-hearted concern for the other person. So it's a feeling of being connected. You're not like, whatever. <laughs> no, no, not indifferent. And they say that the cause of it, and this is what, when Venerable first taught this, that I, I thought was, for me personally, quite helpful. Because to get to a point of an equanimous mind, it's helpful to realize that, so it's like she described it like this. So, yeah, you're, you're trying to help someone, but you know what? They're stuck, or they're not listening, or they're this, or they're that. And so you actually can't really help them, right? And so you could get kind of like, oh, screw you, you know, rude, and just walk off, close the door, right? But no, but this is the mind that wants to keep the door open. And so one way to, that is really helpful is to realize that you know, this, is, this person has their own karma. What they're experiencing, or what they're going through, they've created the causes for it. They actually also have to be the ones who change it. The most you can do is kind of be of assistance. Like we're the conditions for each other, but we're not the cause. I can't cause another person to change. I can maybe be a stimulus, I could be you know, part of the support. And so when you when you kind of don't overstep that bounds, it's a lot easier for the mind to be equanimous because you're not trying to do more than is actually even possible. Yeah, and so the great thing about that then is that if you if you have that kind of equanimous mind when these situations come up and they you know they come up a lot. You know, just little even if they're just small little things. But if you can keep the door open then, as the conditions change, it's really so much easier to reestablish the relationship. And then you probably can be of benefit then. And, and, you know, where I used to work, you know, I worked with people all day long, and I had this one mentor, and she pointed this out to me, because I had this kind of way, in that, at least in that work setting, it was easier, of course. But I always kind of had the door open. You know, in my role as a physical therapist, you were trying to get people to do things. <laughs> And a lot of times they had fear, they had injuries, you know, you're trying to get people to exercise who don't like to move and get out of bed who are really clobbered and don't want to get out of bed, you know, all kinds of things. You're always trying to, you know, it's, it's kind of it has this activity component to it. And, you know, and, and then to me it was all about education, but I had this attitude going into that, and she pointed it out to me because I didn't recognize it, but it's good to recognize these things because I can see how it worked. Because then what happened is, People are going through things, you know, and then there comes a time when you have the teachable moment. And it's not always the first visit, <laughs> it's not always the third visit, but there, you know, if you, if you get frustrated, this is, a, I think, what happens in healthcare a lot, when people are not validated. You, you know, I've seen this happen many times. You go to the doctor, they can't figure out what you have, so they don't validate your experience because they don't get it. Right? That really never works. Or to say to somebody, you don't have pain. Let me tell you, that doesn't work. You know, and it's ridiculous. But this, these kind of things happen. And so those are things that function to close the door. And so if you want to, you know, kind of keep, give it the old college try, is how I always said it to myself, keep the door open, then there comes the time where then the conditions are there, and then, wow, maybe you can actually do something that will help somebody. But if you got frustrated in the interim because you weren't able to, you know, you weren't able to intervene, you weren't able to whatever, and you let that kind of go into the relationship, then it, you have another hurdle to overcome. So any uh, comments or questions before we close? Just a little bit of time. Yeah. I had a question about exuberance and... Um when you're so moved to exuberance, but it's because you can feel the profound love, I mean, what is that? 
how is that positioned as, um, you know, or you talked about over-emotion. Mm-hmm. Well, in that one, I can't say I understand it so well. They were talking about joy, you know, and they were saying that with the joy, you might think you're having joy, but you're actually, your mind is getting unsettled because it's so exuberant. And I can think of, you know, I tried to think of it more in those kind of experiences. They didn't tie it in so much with the love one. But I think your question more is just like, how to know, I mean, it's a very good question, how to know when, I remember where I learned this once, was we have these things that are qualities, but sometimes if we take them too far, they become kind of problematic. I think actually that when I was, I was taught that once by a psychologist, but I think it actually is not correct. I think they actually shift. I think you may start with a certain kind of positive emotion, and sometimes it morphs into something else. So I don't think this, the depth of what we can experience in terms of loving-kindness is said to be limitless, both in terms of the number of beings, but also in terms of the intensity. So I think that's possible. But then I think the, the difficulty might be to discern when we may have shifted, because it is hard to sometimes tell when you have attachment. You know, it's harder to recognize. And so I think then, you know, for people who have more experience with this, you know, like, you know, I know Zopa has talked about this a lot because it's something that she's spent a lot of time with, and I'm more learning about it in the last bit. Um, you know, it's kind of watching the flavor of your mind. Like, can you let things happen? <laughs> or, you know, are you just like cling on to these things? Can you let the thing kind of go? You know, if you're, if you're feeling love for someone, you're wishing them to be happy, you know, then when they leave, you can say, you know, you can kind of rejoice in the time you had together, but you're not like, ah, come back, you know. So it's it's really a discernment thing, and, and uh, I think maybe other people have some things to add. Yeah. I was thinking, um, being a parent that I am, so when you have your child that does something, when you have expressed some joy, but there's a degree of kind of going overboard, I've seen, um, where it becomes more about the parent, and then I can see that falling into pride, rather than about just joy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a reflection of the parent. And right. I, I um, yeah. see that. Yeah, I can see that. In my example. In my mm-hmm. um, nieces and nephews, and it's, the focus is taken off, yeah. the other person yeah. and the, then the focus becomes about the action you know. Yeah. And it can work both ways. Yeah. You know, I think that's the other that's the other catch to it. Mm-hmm. Something you know, not positive happens and like this I guess different kinds of parents coming to these events and you know some were really really supportive and others were like kind of it's like filling them up in a way that was not always healthy for the kids and the kids when they wanted to like quit playing sports because they were wanted to move on to something else and the parents were like ah. <laughs> all these kind of pressure things you know yeah it's uh, for me it's a different vibration mm-hmm. the joy I mean <clears throat> I think of the Dalai Lama and he yeah. emanates joy. That's yeah. a warmth, mm-hmm. and, a, and that's a, the vibration is just a very like a steady stream. Mm-hmm. When I get into exuberance, there's an anxiety level. It's actually a, a level of anxiety. We can intoxicate it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember when my son did really well in, in a national championship, and I remember when we crossed the finish line, and we had this experience of absolute profound joy. There was no jumping up and down mm-hmm. just with, yeah. with each other. Yeah, right. And it, yeah, yeah. it's just a very warm, yeah. from my experience. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're Even describing it, I'm starting to get excited. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so maybe we'll just sit for a moment and then we'll dedicate. So um, think about the homework or something that you want to take away from this talk and try to just remember, plant the seed.
Due to the Spirit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forever.